From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Those of you who are watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live are going to think that it's Roll Back the Clock Day, uh, or we're running a four-year-old episode of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Has it been but that long? It's been a while. I don't know how long exactly. Probably not quite that long, but it's been it's been a while. But Father John Trujillo traveling today and filling in for him. It's old home week as John Martinoni sits in with us from the Bible Christian Society, and he's ready and willing to take your phone calls here uh, on Open Line Monday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271-2985, and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985, or you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And hosting today, Forefather John Trujillo, the aforementioned John Martinoni. How are you? I am doing well, sir. How about yourself? Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, so when we talk about apologetics, we talk about not saying we're sorry for something, but you know, giving an explanation for why we believe what we believe. And if you... <clears throat> Excuse me. Fly through and yeah, flew exactly. in your mouth, right? If uh, as we look at you know some of the practices of some of our evangelical brothers and sisters in our day and time, and if you look even quite frankly at some of the texts of the Gospels, you see situations where uh, conversion is followed almost immediately by baptism or entry into the church by some means. But when you look to the Catholic Church, there's a period of formation that goes on that usually, in the ordinary fashion, culminates with either baptism or uh, full communion with the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil Mass or at some other uh, you know, point, depending upon how long the, the formation period has been. Talk a little bit about the discrepancy that seems to be there. <clears throat> between, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch, for instance, and what you see today in the Catholic Church. Yeah, and uh, in the very beginning, you don't, of the very beginning of the church, you don't have the structure, the infrastructure, if you will, to have an extended period of catechesis for people before they come into the church. And, you know, the apostles basically have just learned 
Uh, you know, they spent three years with Jesus and they learned about uh, uh, spirituality and faith and et cetera, et cetera. But it was really when the Holy Spirit came to them, uh, you know, as tongues of fire over their heads on the day of Pentecost, that they were fully enlightened with what this Catholic faith is. And so they go out and they start preaching and they say, hey, um, you know, Basically, it's an invitation to join us, to join the church, the body of Christ. And they say, uh, why wait? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. Some 3,000 people were baptized that day. But then what immediately happened afterwards, uh, Acts 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread, the, the Mass, the Eucharist, and the prayers, the, primarily the Eucharistic prayers, the prayers of the Mass. So it wasn't that, oh, hey, you could just come on in and you're good to go. Was, no, there was a period of catechesis, of teaching, after they had been baptized. And again, the reason for that was there was nothing in place to say, hey, all right, you guys— Come on over to, uh, you know, Peter's house, you know, all 3,000 of you, and we'll, we'll learn for, you know, several months, once a week for several months, and then we'll baptize you. No, it was just, let's get them in the church, make them members of the body of Christ, let them receive the forgiveness of their sins, and then we will teach. And But then as the church grew... It became obvious to the apostles, to the other church leaders, the bishops who had been appointed in the apostles' stead in the various places uh, throughout the Roman Empire where the church was popping up, uh, Corinth, Rome, Thessalonica, etc., Jerusalem, that, hey, a lot of people need some catechesis, some teaching, so that they know exactly what it is they're getting into what they're accepting so that they can then go out and teach others. And so it was a, it was a process, a gradual process of development of the system that we have now. Um, but again, in, in the very beginning, it, it simply could not, from a logistical standpoint, it could not be that way. And so God is, is a God who, hey, he takes the situation as it is, and then he develops it from there. And that's what's gone on with uh, what you see at the very beginning of the church with 3,000 being baptized before they really received any kind of serious catechesis about this faith that they're being baptized into versus what you see now where in most instances there's a period of catechesis so that people know that when they're baptized or when they are, if they're already baptized as a, you know, a non-Catholic Christian— that when they uh, confess the faith of the Catholic Church and receive communion, that they are actually in union with the Church before they receive the communion that is the sign of that unity. And for those of us who might be enamored with the trappings, the apparent trappings of the early Church, it probably shouldn't go unmentioned that... Um, all but one of the apostles and a whole big batch of those believers got killed for what they believed. Absolutely right. Uh, you know, the, the I, I often I, I've seen a a uh, it's not a meme because it's more like a cartoon lately where 
the apostles are standing around a fire and Peter tells them, hey, hey guys, I've got this idea. Let's pretend that Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's steal his body and pretend he was raised from the dead. And we'll tell everybody he was raised from the dead and, and it'll be great. And, and uh, I can't remember which, it was like Bartholomew or Philip. One of them was like, okay, then what? Well, then, then we get tortured and we die, you know? And he's like, well, wait a minute. He said, uh, and, and all the apostles are going, yeah, all right. And he's going, well, wait, hold on. That doesn't make it. He goes, do we get rich? He goes, no, no, we get tortured and we die. And every time he says that, the apostles go, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and he says, well, well, do we get fame? Do we get power? He says, no, we get tortured, then we die. And all the apostles, yeah. And it's like, well, then I don't, why would we fake this? You know, so, yeah, many of the apostles, uh, well, what? Eleven of the twelve apostles, right. all, all except John, were were beheaded, stoned to death. Uh, you know, Bartholomew, I think, was flayed alive. Uh, and they they were all killed for their faith without getting fame, without getting fortune, and and many of the early followers. And I think I don't know how many of the first forty or fifty popes were martyred. So this is not a faith that you enter into lightly. You know, you need to understand what you're getting into when you get into it, because there are going to be a lot of people who don't like the fact that you are now Catholic. And I think these early believers uh, sort of, in, in some regard, made up for their lack of catechesis with their understanding of what this meant yes. for them. Because the martyrdom didn't start, there wasn't this delay and then the martyr, I mean, it started right away. <laughs> Pretty early on. And, and, you know, there are stories that I've, I've read that uh, when the Christians, for example, in the Colosseum in Rome, when they were being chewed up by lions and they're sitting there singing while the lions are gnawing on their bones, that people in the stands were so impressed, so set on fire by this witness of these Christians to fearlessly go to their that they jumped into the arena to be martyred as well, even though all they knew is that whatever it is these people have, I want it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with John Martinoni. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on the world over with Raymond Arroyo. You can check it out Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN radio and television. And you can get news from the world over in your email inbox every week. Sign up today. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up is John in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. John, you are on with John Martinoni. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I was just going to say, like, I really don't believe in any of this stuff. Um, and the, the topic that you're mentioning, like a meme with uh, them, you know, saying, oh, yeah, let's get tortured and blah, 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 for, you know, whatever. I just, I kind of feel like, you know, people have done that before in the past. Like, we've seen this in history where people just, you know, they do things like they charge into battle, you know, for insane reasons, you know, for different beliefs and this and that. And they really, truly believe this stuff, you know, but... You know, some people just make stuff up and send them off into battle, you know. So, you know, like, uh, I mean, we've seen that with, uh, there's there's so many examples where people, like, you know, they'll send warriors off to do battle and they'll give them a piece of armor that they'll say, you know, nothing can pierce this. And then they charge into battle and then all of a sudden it pierced, their shield gets pierced or something. Or, you know, something ridiculous like that. Like, they, they give them a belief. And uh, I just I just really don't believe um that much and anything that the church really has to say anymore. I also believe that it has become way too political. Okay. Um, well, let, let me ask you this, if, if you're still there. Um, everything you said about the people who, you know, get sent into battle and they have this ridiculous belief, but they have a belief. You know, if they're told by somebody, let's say by the, you know, the the the, the shaman or, or whoever that, hey, wear this one small piece of armor and you won't die, you know, in battle. Well, they be- believe it. They don't go into battle saying, oh, this is a lie and I know it's not true. And then they rush into battle for a lie. Same with, uh, you know, the leaders maybe know, know they're lying. The shaman may be know, knowing that they're lying. But the people going into the battle don't know they're lying. That's the whole point with the apostles. Would you die for that which you know is a lie? Now, you may have a weird belief, a fantastic belief, a crazy belief, but it's a belief. It's something you believe in and you think it's true. The apostles would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt if Jesus did not rise from the dead— that he didn't rise from the dead. And so there's a difference between what the apostles went through and what these these uh, uh, examples that you're giving. It, it's completely different because the apostles would have been doing it knowing it was a lie, going in and suffering torture, death, beheading, being flayed alive, being thrown from the, the temple, uh, in, in Jerusalem, all of these things, it would have been done knowing it was a lie versus the people you mentioned were going into battle, believing some crazy thing, but they believed it. That's the difference between those two sets of circumstances. You know, uh, in addition to that, the, um, well, it just left me (laughs) (laughs) you're you're getting old Uh, so uh, oh one other thing the church is getting too political look the the church that's where i was going well you go ahead there are there are certainly human negative human elements that have impacted the church to this very day i don't think anybody with any sense would argue that that's not the case but the claims of holy mother church and her teachings especially of the apostles themselves 
have history on their side. Yes, that's the thing. I always tell people when I'm when I'm teaching people how to explain and defend the faith, not only do you have logic and common sense on your side as Catholics, but you have history and the Bible on your side as Catholics. And so you, you might say, oh, the church is too political. Well, the church, you know, being responsible for faith and morals should be involved in all aspects of society, not running necessarily all aspects of society, but should be involved in all aspects of society. It's ch- because it's children are involved in all aspects of society, political, economic, educational, uh, uh, the businesses, the, the medical professions, legal professions, etc. Everywhere, every kind of profession you have, there are children of the church involved in these professions. And so the church needs to be able to speak out in these areas. Now, you can agree or disagree. Let's say the Pope you know, he's he's from what I've read, it seems like he's he's bought into man-made global warming. Well, is that proven? Is it not? You may agree with him. You may disagree with him. Either way, you need to sit down and say, at least as Catholics, say, hey, the pope said this. He's the leader of my church. I need to give not give him the benefit of the doubt, but give him a fair and reasonable listening of what he's having to say. Now, when he's speaking on global warming, on politics, on economic, I as a Catholic don't have to believe every single thing he says. When he speaks on doctrine and and morals, faith and morals, as the head of the church to the whole church, well, yeah, I have to believe that, but not on these, you know, math, biology, again, economics, politics. So, yeah, maybe he's too political. Some people would say he's not political enough. So you're going to have varying opinions across the entire spectrum of opinion on the pope, on various bishops, priests, etc. But the thing is, is the church needs to be able to speak with a voice in all of these areas because its children are involved in all of these areas. John Martinoni sitting in today for Father John Tregilio. It's all Johns all the time. We're going to another John in Greenville, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you are on with John Martinoni. <laughs> Thank you for taking my call. Sure, I, what's up? I had, a question ever since, I had a question ever since I was a little kid, and maybe now's the time to ask it, but have there ever been any descendants of any of the biblical figures that, you know, we read about, like Mary Magdalene, the Apostle, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, have there ever been any descendants identified uh, through DNA or any other way? Are there people out there, there must be, that are descendants of these people? Well, there, there probably are. Like I said, the odds are that you know, there's somebody who's a descendant of uh, Joseph of Arimathea or, or um, you know, the James and Joseph's mentioned in, in, as, as two of uh, James and Joseph's, Judas and Simon. The people mentioned as the quote-unquote brothers of Jesus. Other people mentioned in the Scripture. Odds are there's a distant relative of at least one of them somewhere alive on the planet today. But here, here's the thing. We have no way of knowing because, number one, well, how do you know DNA? You can't do any kind of DNA matches because uh, uh, 
you know, you just you don't know where these the people, the New Testament figures where most of them are buried. Uh, and even if you say, well, that's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Really? How, how do you know? And, and well, maybe you're able to find a DNA sample from this 2000 year old uh, remains of this 2000 year old body. Uh, maybe not. And even if you are, how can you match that to somebody? And you just don't know. But here's something interesting. I'll tell you, at least I found it interesting. I had a, a, a guy I know, friend of, he, he's big into um, uh, genealogy. Thank you. And uh, he's, he did a, a, a tree on my wife's family. Well, on my family and my wife's, but it, it was interesting on my wife's in particular because most of my family is from the Polish and Italian regions, and there's not a whole lot of databases that go way back that you could find on your English uh, versions of the, you know, whatever the genealogy websites are. But my wife's family is descendant from English and Scottish. So he's got a database from England, I believe, that traces her. And, and one of the things it said is that my wife is a descendant of the Apostle Mark. Okay. Now, I called him. I said, how the heck do you figure that? He said, well, there's this genealogy that some king of England did, or maybe it was a king in France, an English-speaking king of France, that their historians traced the lineage of the king back to the Apostle Mark in, say, the 1200s, which, well, that's dubious at best. You know, you're trying to, to prop up the, the authority of this king, and well, he really is the royalty. You know, he's, he's chosen by God. See, one of his great ancestors is the Apostle Mark. And basically, that's what this guy told me. He said, that's what was going on. So there will be genealogies that say so-and-so is descended from the Apostle Mark, but they have absolutely no way of knowing whether that's actually the case or not. I mean, there are no you know, claims on living descendants of Constantine right. or you know any of the historical figures Julius of the, Caesar of the time, which i think makes what we know about the history of the individuals in the church even more amazing yes and maybe i don't know supernatural yeah and and that's the thing i would say to the first caller we had is that, yeah i don't believe the church and the, i'm like look 2000 years the church the papacy the church is the oldest institution that I'm aware of on the face of the planet. And there is no way that from purely human means that it would still be in existence. There was a, uh, I can't remember the Pope's name, early 1800s, he was captured by Napoleon, brought back to France, and Napoleon told the Pope, I am going to destroy your church. And the Pope's response to Napoleon was, and again, early 1800s, he says, if the bishops and priests haven't been able to do it in 1,800 years, you don't have a chance. That's exactly right. Thanks so much, John. We appreciate the phone call. Judy in Louisiana, do not hang up. You are next. We are going to talk to you in just a moment, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. If you'd like to be part of the program today, the number to be on the show is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. It's a free phone call. 
anywhere in the United States and Canada. If you happen to be outside of North America, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line, but not ahead of Judy in Louisiana, but ahead of anybody else at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with John Martinoni filling in for Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. couple of open lines and plenty of time for your phone calls. As advertised, next up is Judy, a first-time caller in the great state of Louisiana listening to Christ Our King Radio. Judy, you're on with John Martinoni. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, Christ is risen. Amen. Yes. So I um, will attend a wedding for co-workers, uh, kids, and they are uh, Greek Orthodox. So uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not planning to uh, uh, attend communion because I don't think they're united to our Pope. But my question is whether or not Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. I, I would genuflect or bow or, you know, and, and pay him his his due. Help me with uh, what my procedure would be. Okay. Um, the Greek Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox, the Orthodox churches in general have all seven sacraments that the Catholic Church has. They are valid. They are, however, as you said, you as a Catholic should not be receiving in the Orthodox Church because we are not united uh, perfectly under the headship of the Pope. So, um, however, and just as an aside, Catholics can receive in Orthodox churches if they have on a Sunday if they have no alternative with which to fulfill their. Sunday obligation for attending Mass. So let's from, from the perspective <clears throat> of the Roman. Church. Yeah, yeah, let, yeah. <laughs> let me finish. Uh, so, so if you're out in the, you know rural Russia and there's no Catholic church for a thousand miles, you can go to the Orthodox Church and receive if the Orthodox priest allows you to do that. Because most of the time, the Orthodox do not want the Catholics receiving. So in that respect, you're, you're right on. You should not be receiving uh, the Eucharist communion in the Orthodox Church. However, uh, and I can't remember, it's been so long since I've been in an Orthodox Church. Uh, if they have Christ reserved in a tabernacle, and you are aware of that, you know, I know in the Catholic Church, you know, we have the, the red lamp, if, if something along those lines is, is there in the Orthodox Church, and so you're made aware this is where they have the Eucharist reserved, if they do, then yes, some appropriate sign of respect, a genuflect, bow. Uh, I, w- I would say same as in the Catholic Church. You genuflect towards the tabernacle, 
would be appropriate. How's that, Judy? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Martinoni, Mr. Williams. I appreciate your help, and uh sounds like I've got the right things in mind. You appreciate do. it. Good job, Judy. Happy Easter to you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Adele in Fargo, North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Adele, you're on with John Martinoni. Thank you. This is my question. Um, This Tuesday before Easter Sunday, the Christmas Mass is always scheduled well, what happened was they had stormy weather coming, and it was really even worse on Wednesday. And I'm not sure ultimately what the bishop did with the chrism mass. Um, I was, but it brought up these questions: Does there have to be a chrism mass, or can he bless um, the oils privately, or how does all that work? Well, as I understand it, he could bless them privately, um, but I, I think that would be a question better directed towards the chancery in Fargo, North Dakota, and, and just ask, say, hey, what's what's the protocol here? What was done since the chrism mass? Because I, I imagine that there have been instances in the past where due to weather, uh, whether it's snow or tornadoes, whatever, that chrism masses have been canceled before. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, maybe not reschedule, or maybe they're planning on rescheduling the chrism mass and, and having it be something that's just a, a smaller affair, the bishop, a few priests, maybe just the bishop, who knows? But, uh, I, I believe I, I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that the bishop can do this without necessarily having the formal chrism mass or that he could do the chrism mass on his own without having to have all the priests there, et cetera, et cetera. But just to be sure, I would suggest you call the uh, the chancery there, ask for the bishop's office and say, you know, what's going on? Can you explain this to me? Are they going to reschedule the chrism mass? Something along those lines. But one thing I can tell you, Adele, I promise you, Bishop Folda is going to do it a right way in Fargo. <laughs> Because he is uh, he is solid as a rock. Thanks, Adele. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Mike is in the great state of Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Okay. So you've been to Wisconsin then, huh? Oh, you betcha. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the comment that I wanted to make uh, has to do with our parish priest, who's a very good friend of mine, and, and uh, uh, you know, been a priest for, you know, four or five years, and it's uh, very sincere. But he started out maybe a year ago, or six months ago, saying, you know, if you miss Mass, and then you died before you went to confession, you will go to hell. And do you believe there is a hell? And uh, he's very likable young man, so he hasn't. Uh, um, I was I was tickled pink to hear him say that. By the way, and then uh, his ongoing message uh, now is, you know, if you're going, you know, to mass and going to confession and praying every day, he says that's the, just the bare minimum. He says if I was, that's if that's what you're doing, you're getting a D minus as far as your own salvation. 
And um, I just, uh, I don't, I haven't heard anything that he said that is against the teachings of the church. Um, and uh, I just, I wish that I could, I mean, I, and I believe it because I'm a Matthew 25 guy. What Show me your works and all that stuff, which is the way my wife and I have lived. But I would love to hear your comment on it because you just don't hear preaching like that. Um as far as the challenges for people, because it's my view that I think most of the people in the pews kind of think that they are on automatic pilot on getting to heaven. So, John, if you could finish the show, I'm going to run up to adoration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, here, here's the thing, Mike. Uh, generally speaking, I would say your, your priest is, is on track with what he's preaching. If you're looking at, if you're as a Catholic, you're saying, hey, I'm going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to check the boxes, if you will. I'll go to Mass every Sunday. I'll go to confession, maybe once a month, maybe once every couple months. So, you know, and, and then, you know, in between, you're, you're, you're looking at porn, for example, on, on the Internet, or, or, or maybe you're stealing from your company, or, or, you know, who knows what, cheating on your wife or your husband, or it's just, yeah, so he, he's right. The thing that I always tell people is it is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Hebrews twelve fourteen, which says, Strive for peace with all men, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, so start at the end of that sentence. How do you see the Lord? By being holy. How do you become holy? By striving for it. Evil, you can fall into evil. You turn on your computer, you turn on your TV, whatever. You go down to the beach, you can fall into evil. You cannot fall into holiness. You have to strive for it. And being holy is what gets us to see the Lord. The mass, the sacraments, those are channels of grace. For what purpose? To make us holy. Not just so we can sit in the pew and, and say, oh, you know, yeah, Father, I, I actually listened to Father's homily today. It was, it was pretty good. Or, or no, I have no clue what Father said. I kind of zoned out after two or three sentences. You know, and, and, and Mass, you know, the priest raises the host at the consecration. You look at your watch. Oh, oh great. Father's raising the host. We're out of here in 15 minutes. You know, um, yes, that kind of attitude is not the kind of attitude that gets you to heaven, even though you're checking all the boxes. So, yes, your priest is, is I would say, in general, again, not hearing all of what he's had to say and, and context and all that, but in general, based on what you've said, he, he, is, uh, he is teaching your people, catechizing your people properly, because the goal of all this grace that is available to us through the Mass, through the sacraments, through the sacramentals, through prayer, etc., giving of alms, etc., etc., is to make us holy. It's not just to simply check boxes. How's that, Mike? That that's great. I mean, that's you. Uh, I never. I don't disagree with anything that he says. I just have not been able to crystallize it into uh, the proper teaching. In it, uh, he um, wants you to strive for holiness, Mike. Yeah. 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 I have another quick one. Both you guys are so smart, and I love listening to you. <laughs> uh, I 
we have a traditional Latin mass, and, uh, um, and we're one of the four parishes in our diocese, the Diocese of Madison, that has one. And he, he offered that. I mean, he started it when he came here. And um, so I, there's this, there's this con- I won't say conflict, but difference of opinion where, like, our 9 o'clock mass is quite split. I mean, all these large families that used to go to 9 o'clock mass go to the traditional Latin mass. And I've heard the comment from other priests in our town that, you know, since most, a lot of people at traditional Latin Masses kind of think that they're above or kind of think that they're holier than the rest of us. And uh, do you guys have any viewpoint on that? I mean, I've never been to one, but I actually did learn the Latin when I was in fourth grade. So I'm probably older than both of you guys. <laughs> but uh, uh, do you have any comments on that? What I would say is this. There are indeed people within the the traditional Latin Mass community who hold extreme views about, hey, if you don't go to the Latin Mass, you're not really going to the Mass. That the Novus Ordo Mass uh, isn't really the Mass. It doesn't really count. It's not a real Mass. Those people are doing themselves and their community a grave disservice by doing that, because that turns a lot of people off to fo- to folk, uh, you know, to the the mass that they otherwise well they might come and take a peek and like give it a shot. Say, well, let's go see what all the fuss about the Latin mass. Is. Why are all these young families with with seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve kids going to the Latin mass? What's the draw? They might come and look, but if you're telling them, you know, you're not really going to mass and 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 saying things along those lines, you're going to turn those people off. They're never going to come over to your side if they were ever going to. So that's a problem. But the Pope, Pope Paul VI, promulgated the Novus Ordo Mass in what late six, early 70s, uh, 71 maybe, and anything promulgated by the Pope as the head of the church to the whole church, well, if you believe in Vatican I, it cannot contain error in doctrine and morals. So, uh, so there's that to consider. But on the other end, I would say also you have a similar happening, a similar occurrence in the charismatic community in many times because there, you know, I've got good friends in the charismatic community. It's not my spirituality, just as the Latin Mass is not my spirituality. But there are folks in the charismatic community, if you're not speaking in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Same thing. They're doing themselves a grave disservice, and they're doing their community a grave disservice. Yes, the charismatic spirituality is not everyone's spirituality. Just like the Latin Mass, the traditional spirituality is not everyone's spirituality. I'm much closer to Latin Mass spirituality than charismatic, but hey, this church, as long as you're going to Mass, you're not doing anything that's contrary to any of the doctrinal or moral teachings to the Catholic Church— and you've got a a, 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 um, a particular spirituality that the church has accepted in one shape or form or another, then, hey, folks, don't be downing what the other guy is doing, especially if you're trying to recruit people to your side. Just do your thing, do what you can, and, and worship Jesus in within your own spiritual spirituality, in your own community, and strive to be holy, however the best way for you to do that. And, and so 
Yeah, I've heard it in the Latin mass community. I've heard it in the charismatic community. I've heard it over here, over there. And it just, it is not good wherever it pops up because as long as the church has said this mass is okay, the, the Novus Ordo mass is what I'm referring to, then who are you as an individual to say, no, it's not okay? And Mike, I'll tell you, as a charismatic Catholic who is a parishioner at a Latin, traditional Latin mass parish, yes, they exist. <laughs> there are actually many of us. Uh, I couldn't agree with everything that John just said more. You know, the most important thing is that what Holy Mother Church has proposed for our belief, we ought to believe. And anybody, you know, this nonsense that anything since the Second Vatican Council is of the devil is just that nonsense. And anybody who thinks that the Novus Ordo Mass is illegitimate uh, is just is just wrong. And we've had some some uh, some correspondence, as I'm sure you're well aware, from Rome recently uh, regarding these measures. And we could get correspondence that would um, shut down the discipline, you know, for all practical purposes, shut down the discipline of the traditional Latin Mass. Um, and you know what? Uh, the Holy Father is within his purview to do that. And obedience is important. Yes. Obedience is important and not casting aspersions on your brothers and sisters who have made different choices than you have but are still within the umbrella of Catholic teaching. You know, that, that, that's, that's what we have to stay away from more than anything. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it's, distur- uh, it's disturbing to me when I hear people say, well, again, you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm charismatic in the sense that, you know, teaching is a charism of the Holy Spirit. So I'm charismatic in that respect. Um, I even had a, a moment uh, several years back of about 10 seconds where I was able to translate somebody speaking in tongues. And then I realized I shouldn't be able to understand what they're saying. And as soon as I thought that, I couldn't understand them anymore. So I know speaking in tongues is a real gift of the Holy Spirit. Some people have it. I don't. Latin Mass. I've been to Latin Mass. It's reverent. It's holy. It's Mass. You got Jesus up there on the altar, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But it's it's not my spirituality. So, uh, But I'm not going to say, oh, you Latin Mass people, or oh, you charismatics, you, you know, you're doing it wrong. You need to come to the Novus Ordo Mass. That's where it is. No, it's just, it is not right to, as Jack said, to disparage people who are doing things that are accepted by the church, but just because it's different from the way you do it, you're, you're, you're disparaging them, you're putting them down, and, and that is just not right. God bless you, Mike. We appreciate the phone call today. Um, our great EWTN radio partner, Catholic Radio Network, with stations in uh, northwest Missouri and uh, Colorado. They're airing their sp- spring pledge drive next week. Whether you're listening in Missouri, Colorado, Kansas, or anywhere, please support your local Catholic radio station. Next up is Maria in Carlsbad, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you're on. You're, Maria's a first-time caller, I should have mentioned. Awesome. Maria, you're on with uh, John Martinoni. Uh, yes, uh, Don. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, yesterday, they at my church, uh, the uh, Catholic, Latin, they passed uh, the wine also for the first time. 
And I felt uncomfortable taking it because of the recent pandemic. And they're still, you know, do we have to take the wine or? You do not have to receive from the precious blood from the chalice. Uh, because when you receive the Eucharist under the appearance of bread um, or uh, the, the species, uh, the full Jesus is contained in each of the species. So under the appearance of bread, you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Under the appearance of wine, if you just took uh, the precious blood from the chalice— and not the host, you would still be receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So, no, you do not have to receive under both species. If you receive the host, then that's enough. And and I understand your concerns. Other people share those concerns. And so you do not have to receive from uh, the chalice as well. I'll take it a step further, even, with the exception of once during the Easter season— you don't have to receive at all to fulfill right. your Sunday obligation. Right. Yes, you don't have to receive uh, uh, the Eucharist at Mass, uh, like I said, once during the Easter season, and, and you're good to go uh, as as the bare minimum. So, But obviously you want to receive more if, if you can because of the incredible graces that one receives through the Eucharist. Absolutely. God bless you, Maria. Thanks so much for the phone call. Edward writes in, what does Luke 2.19 mean when it states that Mary kept all these things in her heart? Well, uh, Luke 2.19, and, and later on in that chapter 2, there's uh, another, I think, um, right next to the last verse, and when Jesus, when they found him in the temple, it says, verse 51, and he went down with them, Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth, Nazareth, and was obedient to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. The full plan of Jesus's, of the reason Jesus was on the face of the earth, why God became incarnate, obviously was not revealed totally and completely in the beginning to even Mary, his mother. So when the when the shepherds came in and told Mary and Joseph and anyone else who was there all the things that the angel had said to them about the babe in the in the in the cradle uh, then Mary and Joseph were like whoa what's going on and Mary obviously being without sin was a little bit smarter than your average person walking the face of the planet um, so she maybe understood things a little bit better than pretty much anybody else, but she wasn't given the totality of God's plan for Jesus being here, that he was going to suffer and die for our sins and be raised from the dead. All of that was not necessarily revealed to her from the beginning. So when these things happened to Jesus, you know, at his birth, and then uh, when he says, when they find him in the temple, did you not know I must be uh, in my father's house about my father's business, basically? They don't fully understand why he's saying what he's saying. So Mary took that and pondered it in her heart. Uh, Mary's watching us on YouTube. Have you been to Mass today? Not today. Uh, today's gospel is when the women are leaving the tomb and they meet Jesus on the way 
back and it says in today's gospel is the other mary at the tomb mother mary i've never understood why such a casual reference or is it mary the wife of clopas essentially the latter if you look uh at the end of mark uh mark 16 says uh and when first first verse and following and when the sabbath was passed mary magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, also the mother of James and Joseph, you know, that's that's mentioned in Mark 15. And then Mark 6, verse 3, the quote-unquote brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph. So it was Mary who, uh, again, it's thought that she was the wife of Clopas. If you put all the mentions in the Gospels together of this Mary at the, at the crucifixion and at the tomb, then it's... It looks like, yes, this Mary is the mother or, or is the wife of Clopas, and she is the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. It is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. So that's that's who the reference is to. And Kate wants to know why some Bibles contain Acts 15.34 and some do not. Acts 15.34. <laughs> you, you have the Bible memorized, don't you, Jack? What? Uh, John three sixteen, yeah, <laughs> Acts fifteen thirty four, yes, which says, uh, uh, well, this one doesn't contain it, so you I can't tell you what 33. it says. Thirty three, thirty three. Basically, what happened is, as the science of uh, theology has progressed. And it seems like the church has realized that there were some verses, very few, but a few, that seemed to have been added after the fact that they were initially maybe notes in the margin. And eventually, as the Bible got recopied by hand, that these marginal notes got included into some copies of the Scripture. So... Yeah, 33, then to 35. So there's no verse 34 in in this copy either. So that's what was going on there. So the church has said that, no, we cannot be sure that these particular verses are indeed the inspired, inerrant word of God. So they've been taken out of later uh, translations of the Bible. You can find more of what John does at BibleChristianSociety.com. On behalf of our host, John Martinoni, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.